This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And yes, it's us. We're back to talk about movies with you again. Um, take a take a sniff, Danielle. Just take a take a whiff. Can you smell? Whiffing? Can you smell the the fall in the air right now? Oh, that's a good dad joke. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm stoked about like. Having lived in California for the past however many years and then being in Florida for a while, I have to tell you, I'm so excited to be back in a location that has fall. Mm, I could not agree more. Yes. <laughs> could not agree more. I don't know what I was thinking living in a place where I don't get to see leaves changing and that crispness in the air, you know, that part of the the autumn where it's kind of warm during the day, but then at night you need a blanket. Mm-hmm. I love that part. Listen, I am so excited. There might be an opportunity for me to experience a Halloween with a jacket because the past, like, what, five years that I've been gone has been hot Halloween, which is one of my biggest pet peeves in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't know if people outside of L.A. know this, but usually... It gets hotter in L.A. towards the fall when everybody else is experiencing fall like L.A. is a hundred and something degrees. Yeah. <laughs> Minimum. <laughs> yes. And I could never get used to it because it's like I would see all my friends back in Georgia, like at the apple orchard with their kids and people drinking cider and shit. And I'd be like, it's a thousand degrees in my apartment and I'm laying in front of an air conditioning yeah i'm in an ice bath like i'm in an urban legend (laughs) yes somebody is about to steal my kidneys yeah no i'm excited and also on top of that i started buying halloween decorations (gasps) oh did you get the 12 foot skeleton no, it's not a 12 foot skeleton because I'm like, where am I going to put a 12 foot skeleton? <laughs> like, I know people are su- are into the abnormally large skeletons these days. Like people are like, oh, it's as big as my house. I'm like, where the fuck are you storing that? Thank like, you. Impossible. At your neighbor's house. In a silo. I have no idea where. But I got a life size skeleton, like a Yay. six foot skeleton. That's gold. Because, oh, you know, I need a little glamour in my life. But here's the thing about Halloween. Just really briefly. I am a person who likes Halloween just enough. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Okay. I know exactly what you mean. I think we're the same way. Yes. I will take a little pumpkin. 
I'll take a couple of little pumpkins and line them up in my house. Maybe a jack-o'-lantern outside if trick-or-treaters are coming. Maybe a couple of lights, a skeleton, a cauldron. Done. Yes. And this is like truly no shade to people who celebrate Halloween like all year round. It's like I have a really good friend named Eddie. If Eddie, if you're listening, I'm about to talk about you. Eddie is the hardest working man in Halloween. That's what we've started calling him because he is like Halloween 365. He starts organizing like haunted house trips in July. Like he is super on top of it and we love him for it. Excellent. But that's not me. Unfortunately, I'm I like it just enough. Like I like a little fanfare. Yeah. Um, obviously I'm out here like buying some decor, but I'm not like overzealous about it. And that's just because I don't know. I don't think I really have any holiday that I go crazy for, but yeah, you know, that's just me. And maybe you, you're telling me this now about yourself. I didn't know that. I think that you, you don't have a holiday that you go bonkers for, but you more than anyone I've ever met will go ape shit. For cinnamon broom season. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you <laughs> have your own <laughs> special connection to cinnamon broom season, even in L.A. OK, first of all, you will like hang out in front of a Ralph's waiting for a damn cinnamon broom <laughs> to come out. Checking that shit weekly. <laughs> but here's the reason. <laughs> I'm pissed off that there's a season for it. Like a cinnamon broom should be a year round thing. That's all I'm saying. You know, to me, I understand that the smell of cinnamon evokes like an autumn or a winter. It's like a cold weather smell. Yeah. But says who? Who fucking said that shit? Yeah. Because I like cinnamon in May. It's not that, you know, to me. I just don't understand why cinnamon brooms only come out in autumn. And so now that I'm forced to buy them only in autumn, you go ham. I go fucking insane because I'm like, (laughs) when is the next time this is going to happen? So it's almost like me being overzealous about the cinnamon broom season is only because it's a limited edition product. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Like you are you are their main target customer (laughs) where like someone is going to come in here and buy 15 brooms because they know they'll be gone next week. But here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. I, for your birthday, which is not in, in the autumn. Definitely not. I am going to buy a Libman mop and some McCormick cinnamon. <laughs> you stupid. <laughs> Just sprinkle the whole container on that mop. And then you're going to twist it open and be like, oh, my God, it's a cinnamon mop. It'll be like your own special <laughs> Listen, I just know somebody's going to be in our comments on our Instagram telling me the reason why cinnamon is only a fall, like some cinnamon farmer or I don't even actually know how cinnamon's made. It's a stick. Is it a tree? It's a stick and they grate it and they powder it. It's a whole ass process. But some, don't worry. You're right. Somebody will tell us. Somebody will tell us. And we will be we will be educated. <laughs> and we normally appreciate it. But all I know is that cinnamon broom goes out, cinnamon mop comes in. <laughs> You're just going to get one in the mail every month like a subscription service. But you can't just buy a mop off the rack at Target or something because it's plastic. The, the, the essence of the cinnamon broom is that it's like made out of like little 
sticky things, like little wispy, sticky things. I don't, I don't even know what a cinnamon broom is made of. That broom is not made of cinnamon sticks. No. They're sprinkling cinnamon on that damn broom. <laughs> They're gluing cinnamon onto that shit. But it's like corn, like husks or whatever. What is a cinnamon broom made of? It's made of stalks, like branches, the things that like come in a broom or like a doll. Is it a corn husk? What is the straw? All right. We got to Google this because I'm going to go crazy. <laughs> it's whatever it is, is is able to bind the cinnamon perfectly. Well, get this. The mop I'm talking about, like the twist fabric mop, right? The ones where you can take the heads off and it just looks like a like a crumpled old doll or puppet or something. Yes. Take that out. Jam it in a pot full of cinnamon. Boil it. Let the essence boil in. Dry it out in the sun. Sprinkle some more cinnamon on it. Put that shit in a box. Priority mail. Here you go. Okay. I'm just looking at it now and I feel like it's pine straw and cinnamon oil. They use an oil on it, which is why oh. it lasts a little bit longer than just powdered cinnamon like you just suggested. Okay, new plan. Mop head, boiling pot of water, cinnamon dust with cinnamon oil in there. I throw it in the washing machine. My washing machine has like a deep fill feature where you can just let shit soak. <laughs> Let it soak in the oil for two days straight. Sprinkle some more cinnamon on it. Dry it out in the sunshine. Priority mail. There you go. April, May, June, July, and August. Okay, look. If you're going to go through all that trouble just to satisfy my year-long cinnamon broom quest, then I'll love you for it. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. You you know where I live. You think I can't find someone to make me a broom year round? Oh, yeah, that's true. You could definitely find somebody like on the corner whittling wood. And then they're like, oh, I'll just make a cinnamon broom for this woman that I've never met. Yeah. Um, whose friend. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> twice removed. The work will be for somebody twice removed. But honestly, if they just made that shit year round, then we wouldn't have this problem. I wouldn't have to be like a freaking lunatic running around to all the trader joe's and the krogers being like bring me all these brooms i've got like 12 brooms in my arms and they're like poking me in the face and shit and i'm trying to like scan them all and self-check out and everyone's like this woman is clearly nuts <laughs> but if they just like it's kind of like when you see a line at a fast food restaurant that goes like around the corner and down the block yeah. and you're like why don't they just put that shit in more places like yes. in and out burger or something when you would go and see the in and out burger line and you're like just make another one like exactly. two blocks down and you wouldn't have the congestion it's how i feel about cinnamon brooms like i would not be a cinnamon broom psycho if they just made that shit year round end of story you know and here's my question, because so you, you buy them bulk, you buy them 12 to 15 at a time. Do you, have, <laughs> do you when you put those all in your house at the same time, do you have like overpowering cinnamon smell for a long time and then it goes away? Or can you bring them out one by one to make it last longer? Oh, it's one by one because you don't want to like blow your load at once. Right. Yeah. Because if you put 15 cinnamon brooms out, like where the fuck am I going to put 15 cinnamon brooms? <laughs> so if you have a closet that you put 15 cinnamon brooms in and then you take one out, is that closet just smell like cinnamon year round? Well, I would never put it just in just a closet. I want to put it out like in the most central location. So usually like the kitchen or like the front room or something like that. Right. right. So that the whole house kind of is 
hugged in the scent. Right. But yeah, once I start noticing it's going away, I'm like, time to retire this bad boy. Got to put out the new cinnamon broom. You're recycling. It's like the menudo of cinnamon brooms. It's just like, you're getting a little too old. Let's hire the new guy. Come on in. Take over. The new addition. Ralph Tresmant, get your ass in here. <laughs> anyway, so that, yes, you called me out on my shit. Yes, I actually do go crazy for some seasonal thing. But for the most part, Halloween in general, you know, I'm, I like it an appropriate amount. Yes. No hate for people who are, you know, bonkers obsessed and wear their spider web tights in fucking February. Yes. I'm not no shade. I'm just saying that for me, I like it. I'm feeling it in the air and I'm, I'm I'm stoked that I'm not in L.A. where it's like probably 103 degrees right now. I completely agree. And I don't I don't go ham for any holiday because I had a traumatic childhood. Yay. Oh, <laughs> we, no. just, we just didn't do shit. Not to make not to bring you down, not to bring anyone down. But like, I'm just not in the habit of celebrating like Halloween or Valentine's Day hardcore. Like we mm-hmm. celebrated at school. And that was it. Yeah. <laughs> like no one in my house was trying to give candy to kids or deal with costumes. Like it just wasn't the jam. So I just never got in the habit of it. So yeah, celebrate all you want. I'm not putting anything outside my house. At most, I'm going to paint my house black and break every single light bulb outside. <laughs> and that's the most holiday spirit I'm willing to get into for Halloween. Also, Halloween is my former wedding anniversary. Oh, it's loaded. So you're saying it's loaded? A little loaded, a little loaded. Yeah, I hear you. But I'm like, I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I like a, a just celebrate just enough. Well, tell me what's up with you now that I've revealed a lot about myself. And some of it I did pull out of you. for th- So thank you for going on that ride with me. Oh, of course. Of course. I, I appreciate that about our friendship that I can just put <laughs> you on blast on this podcast. I need to be put on blast. Come on. Look at me. And it's charming. And it's something I absolutely love about you. And it <laughs> cracks me up every year. Yes. I am doing OK. I have PMS. Mm. You know, what's wild at this point in my life. I feel like I have this period tracker app. So I always know when my period's coming. But for some reason, the app thinks that PMS is only supposed to be like a day long. Wow. I wish. And for me, it's like a solid week, a solid week. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So I woke up this morning. I got up. I fed Carrot a little bit. And the way that I have to feed him, um, because he loves food so much and he's so excited to eat, I have to give him half of a little can. And then I wait like half an hour. I do my morning thing and then I give him the rest. Right. And that keeps him from puking. This morning, I gave him his first half. And I heard what my friend Susie refers to as the techno sound. (laughs) 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 and i'm I'm in bed and i start weeping and then i get up and i see carrot just standing in the hallway proudly over a pile of his own vomit and i picked him up and i'm like crying into his head kissing him and i'm just like please please stop puking please stop puking in the morning i hate waking up like this and then I realized, like, oh, I got PMS. <laughs> yeah, I got PMS. I wiped my tears. I got in the shower. I got dressed. I went to the local hardware store and got some rug stain spray. Mm. <laughs> but I was just like, oh, this is how I find out now. I just burst into tears. Oh, yeah. And just imagine the scene of me just laying in bed on my back 
just weeping and carrot like what the fuck and then just crying about cat puke that's where i am in my life right now i know i'm telling you i feel the same way i feel like my i feel like we talked about this like really in one of the really early episodes about how like our aging bodies have like changed the nature of our pms's yes yeah i get like super emotional and sad now like it was never like that when i was no when i was in my 20s i would just have like the cramps oh my gosh and then i'd be like i'm bitchy but it's (laughs) now it's like i'm just like feeling weirdly emotional so like there's a local chain of grocery stores down here called Publix. i'm not sure if you've ever heard of it but um Publix is known for making these very emotional christmas commercials oh so they have these like you know scenarios it's like a commercial where it's a scenario of you know it's usually like a family member coming home or like some kind of Uh, like uh. kid and grandparent scenario and they're really well done they're like indie movies basically and they make everybody cry like Publix is known for this (laughs) so the other day I realized that now Publix is making them year round, (gasps) speaking of, because one of their newest commercials features an Asian man preparing his house to meet his black girlfriend's daughter. (gasps) And he's super nervous to meet her. And then the daughter comes in. She's like this young girl. And she's just like nice to meet you and he's like nice to meet you and it's like Publix we're shopping is a pleasure and bitch let me tell you <gasps> I was PMSing already so we all know what this is going to be I was beside myself I was <laughs> crying like a fucking lunatic and I was like okay normally this thing would get me but now during the PMS yes. I had to like put my phone on airplane mode i could not even talk to like anybody i was like leave me alone for like three hours i'm just gonna be bawling i feel you so hard i follow a couple of animal sanctuaries on instagram can't follow them when i have pms though yeah. every single post i'm like the calf, the calf is gaining weight it's getting healthy like, I lose it <laughs> and it's just a picture of a fucking calf hanging out in a barn and i'm like he's getting so strong <laughs> <laughs> i know exactly what you're talking about it's the worst just like the thing the progress photo from the shelter and you're just like oh my god are you trying to kill me in cold blood. Oh, oh, like the cats, the cats that have the crust in their eyes. And then the next picture, they're like healthy and their eyes are open. And you're like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> they used to feed him with a Q-tip and now he's eating a steak. And you're like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is we cannot be out in these streets with these like incidental things happening during the PMS time, because it honestly is like jarring like it's not the thing where i'm like oh a a tear is falling and then i move on with my day it's like no i just saw the shelter photos and now i have to call in sick to work for the next week (laughs) precisely it is a minefield i talked to my grandma today at lunch and i started a new job this week so i didn't go over but i've kind of set it up with her i've set up her care so that she's you know consistently seeing people throughout the week when i can't be there yeah And I called her today and she was very lucid and we were joking around and I, you know, just talked for a couple of minutes, told her I'll see her tomorrow, hung up the phone, was fine. 
And then just a quick thought came in my head and I thought my grandma's going to die one day. Burst into oh. tears. <laughs> just hanging out on my porch. Oh. Burst into tears. She's fucking fine right now. We yes. just laughed and had a good time. Just the thought of it made me burst into tears. And I was like, I cannot go through my day like this. I have shit to do. I got a to-do list. I got to start crossing some shit off. I'm crying into my cat. I'm crying over my grandma. <laughs> Let me get through my fucking day, please. Sometimes it feels good to cry like that, though, doesn't it? Like, I don't know about you, but I'm like, not I'm not saying like it isn't fun to like think of the death of family members. But I'm just saying that sometimes like the PMS cry when you like really get into it, you're like, oh, man, like I'm exercising all kinds of shit. Like it's just coming out of my body. Very cathartic. Very cathartic. So, yeah, I had I had a doozy today, but it's it's fine now. It's fine. Just, you know, crying over cat puke. Well, speaking of hell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get into it this week. I'm glad we got our laughs out because what's our theme? <laughs> okay, so our theme for this week is we are in hell. <laughs> now, all right, let's talk about this because it can mean so much. Yes. And when we first came up with it, okay, so I think the plan initially was we came at it from one direction and then we kind of changed it. Yeah. And made it a little bit more broad. We opened it up a lot. And then it became this sort of like, yeah, I mean, hell can be a bunch of different things. It can be like your personal circumstance. It can be like some geopolitical big event. It it, it can mean yep. a lot of things. But I think that like it could be Ralph's and Publix being out of cinnamon brooms. Yes, <laughs> it can be PMS, as we've just mentioned. Yes. But I think for our movies, we kind of took our own look at it. And I think that both these instances it's like one is the sort of like emotional space and the other is like an absolute physical space. Yeah. <laughs> but they're the same thing, essentially. It's hell. <laughs> yeah. I like I like this approach because I think when we originally conceived of it, we were thinking of like very horror laden, you know, that kind of film. So I think that I like that we were able to open it up and kind of, you know, expand our horizons a moment. Yeah, like sometimes hell is not a complete dystopian future. Sometimes it's literally like your neighbors. Yeah. Um, and I that's what I love about it. But I, I'm excited to talk about it because you forced me to watch a movie this week that, speaking of being wrecked, I was fucking wrecked by this film. Not going to lie. And... Lucky for me, you're going first. So you're going to you're going to get to talk about it with me right now. <laughs> oh god. And I know for a fact we we have to talk about it that there were situational moments in this movie that also put you in hell. That oh my god. Hell <laughs> on so many different fronts and I'm just I, like I cannot wait for you to get into this movie. Truly cannot. Let's not wait. Let's do it. <laughs> My film for the theme, We Are in Hell, was released in 2006, directed by Todd Field, and it's called Little Children. It's the hunger, the hunger for an alternative and the refusal to accept a life of unhappiness. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. (laughs) 
I haven't felt this much unease since the time you made me watch Hereditary. <laughs> Which you also watched with your mom. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. What is up with that? <laughs> Double feature. Double feature theme. <laughs> Goes into a quadruple feature theme. <laughs> so this film, oh boy, this film is, I think, stunning. It's a stunning, stunning movie. One of my favorites. Um, Todd Field, the director and the person who adapted the novel that Tom Parada wrote, uh, you'll remember him because he played Frank in Walking and Talking. Yes, that was one of the first things that when I was looking information up about the movie, I was like, I think he is in Walking and Talking. And I was right. Yep. Oh, my God. It's so cool. Absolutely correct. And he is directing a killer cast. Kate Winslet, Jennifer Connelly, Patrick Wilson, Noah Emmerich, and the return of Jackie Earl Haley. So most Woo-hoo. people will know Jackie Earl Haley from his stunning inclusion in the bad news bears franchise um he was also in breaking away mm-hmm. and he kind of had he did a lot of tv movies and kind of faded out around 1993 um from public eye like he he did some tv movies and his last one was in 1993 um and then he did this movie mm. and he was nominated for a best supporting actor Oscar in 2007. Um, He was Freddy Krueger in the Nightmare on Elm Street reboot. Like his whole career restarted. And I have to say it is so well-deserved because this is an absolutely fucking amazing performance. He kills it in this movie. And it was a well-received movie. Um, The movie itself got three Oscar nominations. um, Already said Best Supporting Actor for Jackie Earl Haley. Also Best Actress for Kate Winslet. And Best Adapted Screenplay. And it was on a bunch of critics' top ten lists. Roger Ebert, in his review, called it Stephen King in the summertime (laughs) for the tone (laughs) of the film. Yeah. Um, And I love that. But yeah, Jackie Earl Haley was the highlight of this movie for me. I love everyone in it in certain ways, but he was really the highlight. And it made me also question, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. Is it better when actors step away for a while and then come back? Like, do, do, do they have more gravitas? So to go away for like over a decade and you come back... And you look different and you feel like you're you're older, you're aged, like you're taking different roles. I know that there's kind of a a worry in Hollywood that you won't get cast if you if you say no to things. But I kind of wonder if that's the right move, because he really fit this role to a T. Well, I mean, it certainly is for men. I mean, honestly, there's so Mm. many instances of this. It's like when Mickey Rourke came back and did The Wrestler. It's like when Kurt Mm. Russell came back and you know, Travolta and, you know, basically like that's Quentin Tarantino's situation is that he just brings back all these people that haven't worked in forever. And I think it works to their advantage because usually when they come back and if they're in a really good movie, they get awards. Like a lot of times they get nominated. A lot of times, you know, if the movie's right, then they get, you know, articles written about them. Like so-and-so's back and they're in the best movie of their career and blah, 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 blah. 
Uh, and I say men because it seems to happen more with men than with women. I mean, oh, I think yeah. that might be changing slightly, but traditionally it's always been like, oh my God, he came back. Whatever happened to him? And now he's incredible. Exactly. And even if they play a villain, if if they play a villain, mm-hmm. it almost is no no problem. So it's that thing where, yeah, I think that that it does help sometimes so men men shocker yeah it helps men what a surprise but that but that shouldn't take away from the fact that jackie earl haley is a great actor and deserved whatever he got for yes. being in this film you know what oh, i mean completely completely yeah it was just something that that, that it made me think about like if, if i had seen him consistently over the years would this role have hit as hard yeah but yeah he he just oh god beautiful performance I am going to give a one sentence synopsis before we really get into this shit. Mm -hmm. So here we go. (laughs) My one sentence synopsis of little children. Patrick Wilson fulfills his contractual obligation to take his shirt off and suburban (laughs) lives meet at the intersection of boredom, fury, unhappy marriages and affairs when a convicted sex offender moves back to a Massachusetts town after being released from prison. contractual obligation that man's always naked okay let me let me get into that real quick because if you go to the letterboxed entry for little children Mm -hmm. one of the top reviews you see is somebody who's just the simple review of this film is patrick wilson's ass just full objective objectification that's the only thing in this review and i was like i must not be fully aware of patrick wilson like i know that he was in girls mm-hmm. what else has he been in because he was naked in girls right yes. <laughs> okay he's shirtless in girls i'm thinking of him in this movie girls and Watchmen. not the okay. tv show but the movie the horrible movie okay i never saw it so maybe that's right yeah. Oh, you did not miss out. There's the worst, the worst sex scene I've ever seen in my life in that film. <laughs> I love that. The it worst sex scene. <laughs> tragic. <laughs> tragic. Not only is it not sexy, it was offensively bad. Oh, boy. <laughs> I love it. When I saw it in the theater, everyone burst out laughing. That is how bad it was. Um, but yeah, guys always taking his shirt off. He just loves to take a shirt off. And you know what? God bless him. He's got a great bod. He's he's just like a waspy king. And in fact, he's in the movie. He's called the prom king by like this group of women in the neighborhood. And yes. I was like, yeah, I mean, he kind of is. And so, you know, if you got it flaunted, I suppose I'm not not body shaming you, Mr. Wilson, sir. Not. Oh, no. To me, it's just funny that like the same way that Brad Pitt finds a way to eat in every movie. <laughs> He finds a way to pop that shirt off in every movie. <laughs> Listen, it's a nice little Easter egg for those of us that are paying attention. Patrick Wilson, just I would just walk away from the business from 10 years. Come back, take those pants off and boom, you're going to get an Oscar. Let's get serious. Come back with a paunch. <laughs> Come back with like a hairy belly <laughs> and some sagging. <laughs> like, like you know, like when when the ass... <laughs> This is so terrible. You know, like when someone gets older and their ass just drops and it just kind of drops into like little sags. Yeah, little pools. Yeah, like little pools of skin. Like just come back with a little saggy pool ass raking those Oscars. I'm sure he'll be beloved just the same. (laughs) Well, he does flash a lot of skin in this film. And so does Kate Winslet. 
Because mm. this is truly a story of these two characters who are kind of forced into the to performing these gender roles that neither one of them really wants to play and these mm. like per, these parenting roles and i think that this movie is by and large about a neighborhood but it's also about the complication of marriage and the complication of relationships over time um so sarah kate winslet i keep saying kate winslet like kate blanchett <laughs> <laughs> Kate Winslet, Winslet. Uh, as we know her regionally, (laughs) the mayor of Easttown. She's the mom to a toddler, but she's a very smart and unsatisfied woman. So she has a master's degree in English literature um, and she makes the decision to stay home with her toddler but she's not sure why she's i think it's like she feels this social pressure to do so but she's not happy with it clearly Mm -hmm. and the reason we know this is because the whole film is narrated by will lyman who also narrates frontline on pbs oh my god (laughs) we have to talk about this when i texted you the other day and i was like I can't sleep because the narrator from Little Children is terrifying. I was convinced he was forensic files. Like I couldn't I couldn't pin him down. I was like, okay, whoever is narrating this film is so creeping me out right now. And I think he's from a true crime thing, which is maybe why I'm so creeped out by him. But you you just telling me he's from Frontline, it doesn't change how I feel. But now right. I'm like, okay, at least I have heard his voice before. You can place the, the creep factor. Yes. Because Frontline is not like My Little Pony. It's not like a happy, upbeat show. Oh, no, 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 no. It's like they're talking about like the drug war in foreign countries and stuff. It's not fun, but... yeah. It's it's a slog. It's a slog. It's a great show, but it's a slog. Right. So yeah, he he is the narrator. And I have to say, they picked the perfect narrator Because I think narration in movies, for me, can kind of take me out of the action. And it it, it removes that fourth wall in a weird way. It just takes me out of it. But he was so, his voice fits so seamlessly into the creepiness of the film that it just worked. It just worked. Uh, So Sarah's unhappy. She's got a husband who's very distant um, and who she discovers has an addiction to online pornography in what is supposed to be a disturbing scene, but is possibly the funniest scene in the film. It was disturbing, too. I'll just say that. <laughs> well, that's because you watch this with your mom. <laughs> ah, you watch this with your mom. <laughs> and you were texting with me and I was laughing my ass off. And this is where it becomes for me like that, that footprints poem. And I'm like, it was then my child that I decided to review this film on our podcast. I mean, how else am I supposed to feel about sitting around with my mom, watching a grown man huffing a stranger's panties that he got in the mail and masturbating at the same time? Very important. Very important. If we didn't bring that part up, you don't get away that free. (laughs) (laughs) The the part about it to me that is amusing is all Kate Winslet's reaction. Her standing in the doorway and being like, "Uh, what, what, uh, what, 
do I do? <laughs> like what? And then she gets mad, which is hilarious. Cause usually in that situation, you feel like there'd be like shock and horror and screaming. She gets pissed and she's like, you're basically holding up my nighttime walk. It's the only thing I look forward to during the day. Cause it's the only hour I have away from our child. <laughs> Oh, what a scene. She just goes, we need to talk. And this like slams the door. And I'm like, you know what? I'd probably have that response. You, you need more than a talk, my, my dude. <laughs> you need more than a talk. <sighs> but so Sarah's got this whole life that she's very disenchanted with. And it's it's compounded by the fact that all of the neighborhood moms in the park, like these three moms, um, are just horrendous beings. They're very tied into each other's lives. They're very judgmental. They're very cruel. They're cruel about how each other, how they're raising their children and how everyone else is raising their children. And it's a very powerful scene to kind of instantaneously drive home um, Sarah's unhappiness because she just does not fit into this group. And one thing the group loves is to kind of scope out Who's coming to the park? And Brad comes to the park one day and they're all excited because they haven't seen him in a long time. They call him the prom king because no one's actually ever spoken to the man. Mm -hmm. And he's a very attractive and attentive dad. Um, So they dare Sarah to go talk to him. And she does. And they strike up a conversation. And from that moment on, all hell breaks loose for them. <laughs> there it go. All hell. There it go. And he's equally disenchanted with his marriage. He's married to Jennifer Connolly, who's like this documentary filmmaker and very suave and cool. Um, so she's the kind of mom who insists on having their child in the bed with them. So she'll kind of moon over him and it's like, you know, she's been gone all day at work and she's kind of the breadwinner. So when she comes home, that's her time to have with their kid. But he's like, I want to fuck essentially. Right. <laughs> and she's like, I want to look at our beautiful child that we made together. Well, oh, yeah, she kind of nags him a bit too. Cause I guess, yes. you know, Brad is attempting to be a lawyer, but keeps failing the bar exam. Um, yes. She's just beautiful. But not really warm. I guess that's kind of the feeling towards him. Exactly. Exactly. And she's she does this thing, which I have seen parents do before. Even as someone who does not have children, it drives me up a wall. There's a scene where she comes home from work and their son runs to her and she picks him up and she says, you got some sun today. Daddy didn't use sunscreen, did he? And he's sitting right there. So instead of turning to him like an adult and saying, hey, did you put sunscreen on him today? She talks about him through their child. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is so humiliating and demoralizing. <laughs> it's awful. And that kid is basically like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I guess. I don't know what he did. I was, I'm four. <laughs> yeah. What is a sunburn? Like, he could have covered me in mustard. I don't know. <laughs> But she she's that kind of person. And she, you know, when she talks to her mom on the phone, you get the impression that that's where this comes from. This is kind of like a lineage, like it's part of her family lineage to to have these complicated marriages or to be the kind of icy one in the relationship. Because she, her mom, as soon as she says anything at all um, about how, you know, yeah, I'm kind of tired or ah, I don't know where where Brad is tonight. I think he's playing football. 
the mom is like, I'll come down there and watch him and make sure he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. Yeah. <laughs> like instantly. And I'm like, what is happening here? So, yes. So Brad and Sarah both unhappy. Brad is a little bit stunted in his maturity. So you see him kind of looking at skateboarders and he joins a touch football league. Um, and the reason he joins a touch football league is because of his uh, one of his other parent friends, Larry. And Larry is this disgraced former police officer played by Noah Emmerich. And he's also this one man committee trying to get the sex offender, Ronnie McGorvey, played by Jackie Earl Haley, to leave the neighborhood. And Larry is unhinged. He is an unhinged man. And you're kind of seeing his descent into madness. And they try to do this thing towards the end which I think comes through a little bit, but not a lot, uh, where they explain the reason that he's no longer a police officer is that he accidentally shot a child in a mall right. who had a toy gun. And he never recovered because he had PTSD. And I have to say that in 2021's eyes, that was a part of the movie that I was not willing to go there. Yeah. I'm not willing to like have sympathy for the white cop who shot the black kid by accident. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um so that part didn't hit me as hard this time like the larry narrative i saw him kind of as purely monstrous mm -hmm. and part of the reason is that the ronnie mcgorby character that he's bullying and tormenting he's a very complicated character so he was in jail for two years for exposing himself to a young girl and he moves back in with his mom and his mom is just convinced that if he finds a woman his own age and, and, and goes out on a date, he'll be OK. And he's so realistic about his his life and his issues. And he just turns to her and is like, Mom, I have a psychosexual disorder like this is not something to be cured by a date, essentially. But that scene between them is so moving and weird because he's kind of like at her feet and looking up at her while she's looking through the you know the the personal ads in the paper and he's like all right I'll just do it once and just to make you happy and she starts describing him to himself like you know you're a go-getter and he's like what else and he just keeps saying what else because he's just trying to like he's just reveling in the notion that some somebody thinks he's a good person somebody loves him but then he goes on this date Ooh. And he's an absolute nightmare. I mean, mm. I want to talk about the scene. Jane Addams is, is in it. She's another incredible actress. But I just, I don't want to ruin it for anyone who hasn't seen it. Yeah. Plus, it's so, oh, it really put me in a place. It put me in a dark place because yeah. the date is very, um, very much like you're watching two older people who have sort of they're sort of broken mm -hmm. in their own ways and they're and they're trying to connect in some way you can tell that they're both sort of in their own ways going like i'm undateable right but that the jane adams character is so willing to kind of put her cards on the table right and you get the sense that maybe the ronnie character is also kind of in that mode, but then he does a turn oh. that is just so disturbing and and so dark that I was like, are we watching a Todd Salons movie right now? Like, yes. what is going on? <laughs> yes. Yes. It is bleak. 
And her performance in that car is fantastic. Um, she's a fantastic actress, but it made me so sad. And it made it also made me sad thinking that this movie does such a good job of pulling out the complicated nature of humanity and the human experience. So you have this person who wants to be accepted, wants to be loved, wants to be, you know, quote unquote normal, but is completely been ostracized by his community. And maybe rightfully so. Maybe rightfully so. Like there's another scene at the pool where he goes swimming. And at the beginning of the film, we kind of get the laundry list of what he is and is not able to do based on a news report. Mm -hmm. And he's not supposed to be at this pool. He can't be within 100 yards of kids, you know, or 100 yards of certain things. So when he goes to the pool and the scene is stunning, he goes into this pool and he puts on flippers and a snorkel and he starts swimming and he's just looking at all of these bodies underwater. Most of them are kids. And he pops up a couple of times and then there's a total panic. And everyone grabs their kid out of the pool and they're all standing around the pool in silence looking at him and the cops are called. So it's that. And he, when he gets out of the pool, he's like, I just wanted to cool off. And you're like, but you didn't, you were being a sexual predator. So it's kind of presenting this. And I I both love and hate the movie for this. Like it's presenting this very complicated push and pull dynamic about is a person horrible based on their actions or you know, is a person redeemable based on their actions. Right. And I think part of the reason I love the movie is because I hate feeling like that. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I like that it pushes me to a place where I have to consider things differently. Yeah. Even if I land on the same side, which is like, he's a sexual predator. Get him out of there. (laughs) Right, right, right. Get him out of that pool. So, and this, and the same thing can be said for the other characters. You know, I think that, you know, Sarah and Brad, uh, who are having an affair, but the way it's presented and the way that they're presented as singular people prior to getting together, you kind of feel like it's they're a good match. Yeah, they're a good fit for each other. And when their kids are hanging out together, it makes sense. And they look like a family. And you kind of forget for a minute that they're cheating on their 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 partners. So it's a really interesting push pull in this film that I think is part of the reason it stays with me. But there are just so many scenes, including the laundry room sex scene that are just so graphic, so graphic (laughs) and meant to like really drive home that desperation. Yeah. But I think part of the reason I chose it for the for the we are in hell theme is because absolutely every single character is in their own separate hell. And when they come together to alleviate that pain, they just create more hell. Right, right. Oh, oh, totally. It's it works on many levels, as you said, but also to it's it's one of these movies where the suburbs are hell. Right. Because, yes, the one woman in the film that I think is you just love to hate is that blonde lady. Marianne. Yes, the Bob haircut. She's kind of like the leader of the mean girls, but like they're grown women with children and they go to the playground and she's kind of like super judgmental, super bitchy. And you just 
know this woman like through and through like this character is like absolutely like ripped from the headlines of like every you know mean suburban mom yes you know and that's the thing about kate winslet's character is that she's like she just doesn't she doesn't fit in with them she doesn't want to be a part of their crew she kind of goes off on her own and reads and she just and part of like i think her motivation to talk to the brad character is to be like fuck these bitches i'm gonna do what they can't do which is that yes. they want to like sit around and 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 call this guy the prom king and without engaging with him i'm gonna go up to him and actually like you know try to talk to him and you know, that's the thing is that like the, the, the environment that they're in is also a hell like this, um, really like gossipy neighborhoody shitty fucking neighbor vibe. Right. Oh, that book club scene. Yeah. Just exemplified that perfectly. Right. So these, you know, there's an, an older woman who's friends with Sarah and she brings her to a book club and she's kind of there as a little sister. Um, and Marianne is also there. Like the, the blonde Bob lady is also there. And just watching them react so differently to the same book and, you know, this horrible, mean suburban type person is just can't think very deeply about what she's reading and just calls the character a slut and then you have Sarah giving this incredibly eloquent and thoughtful and emotional response. And it's just so evident that she doesn't fit in with her age group right now in this environment, but she does fit in with the older women. And it's like, well, is that who they become or like, are they being mirrored here in some way? I don't know if that makes any sense, but yeah, it was just a very interesting scene. And I think it's, it's the suburbs are hell. I think that the suburbs, especially for Sarah kind of, just exemplified death for her. Like every day is the same. She's not really connected to her kid. There are p parts in the movie where you're not even sure if she loves her kid. Mm -hmm. um, she's kind of gone and done her Virginia Wolf, you know, created a room of her own sort of thing. So she can have a space in the house where she can be away from her family. And when her daughter like infiltrates that space for a minute, she gets very upset and very testy and she's very short and she has a very short temper. And it's just really wild to see how the suburbs are impacting this character. But the same way, it, it, in the same way, it impacts Brad's character very deeply, but in a totally different way. Like he is in hell because he's not he's no longer, you know, the high school or college sports star. And he's not really he's not really living up to his potential, but he's doesn't really have any ambition. And I think that's his greatest, you know, personal hell is that he does not have any ambition and he wants that to be okay. And it's absolutely not okay within his family that he's created. Yeah, you're right. It's the, it's that reinforcing of these like gender roles that you said at the beginning, you know, that make this movie like, yeah, people it's, it's very layered in terms of the hell that people are experiencing. And honestly, like, <laughs> I was shook. This movie shook me to my core, not just because of the like very uncomfortable scenes of, you know, the things that we just spoke about, but it all kind of came together in this way that was just sort of like, oh my God, like how, how is this going to play out for everybody? Like everybody's making bad choices and I don't know like mm -hmm. what to do about that. And you know, like, how's this going to shake loose? The end is legitimately <laughs> shocking. Oh Yeah. Like when you see how it does come together for everyone, it is shocking. 
Well, I have to tell you, I have not been this disturbed since Hereditary. <laughs> I must say you continue to bring films to this podcast that freak me the fuck out. <laughs> and they're always inappropriate to watch with your mother. <laughs> and somehow I always do it. And <laughs> I just can't thank you enough for opening my eyes. <laughs> you are so welcome. I will strive to continue the trend of occasion. I'd say that I would be happy with at least twice a year freaking you the fuck out. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is a perfect movie for this theme. I'm so glad that you picked it. Again, like I love it when I watch movies that I've never seen before. And, you know, and honestly, like I love the people in it. I love that it was directed by Todd Field. And like we didn't really talk about Tom Parada much, but, yeah. you know, I watched Mrs. Fletcher when it was on HBO. And, you know, it's like I was when I found out that he wrote the book, um, I was like, oh, that's cool. So, yeah, he's he's such a great novelist. Like he also wrote The Leftovers, which was turned into a stunning series for HBO. Yeah. Um, he wrote Election. He's just a great writer and yeah. his characters are always very interesting. So, yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that he uh, he wrote this and 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 was part of the screen screenplay process as well. That's cool. A great pick followed by. Something that's even more disturbing, perhaps. <laughs> I can't wait. Well, okay. Oh, man. Um, my movie for the theme of We Are in Hell is a movie from 1977. It was written, directed, and produced by John Waters, and it's called Desperate Living. Oh my God. Ooh, boy. I just have to say for the record that we're never going to be able to actually talk about this because it would just give too much away about both movies. But there is a, a correlation between the two of them that if somebody guessed it in our comments, we'll just have to give you a little squeeze on the shoulder, but that's all we can do because it it's not the theme, no. but it is something that, <laughs> that could be is inherent to both films, but we can't talk about it and I'll just leave it at that. I'm just going to be very vague oh, and I'm, I, I'm sorry to do it, but that's just the way it has to be. Am I right? Agreed. This is our first John Waters film that we're re reviewing on the, on the pod. Yeah. I was going to say, I can't believe that that, is happening finally i mean this is episode 42 we've had 41 episodes and we haven't spoken about john waters i think that's i admire our restraint to be honest <laughs> um because honestly i feel like i don't even really have to talk about him very much because to me i think he's he's probably the most famous living cult filmmaker in the world i would say mm -hmm. i agree I mean, he's just like an icon and a hero to people. And I mean, he's just a he's a handshake director, really, is what I think of him. Like, I can go down the list of people that I know and say, oh, I developed a friendship with this person because we both like John Waters movies. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. he's that he's that kind of person in our culture. And he has this group of friends that he's made movies with since the late 60s really called the dreamlanders and they were essentially these like 
Baltimore people, like people he knew from Baltimore and they're women and gay men, essentially. Mm -hmm. And they're not, a lot of them aren't professional actors and they are in his movies. And I think that that also is a reason why people just love him so much is that he's kind of like a guy that gathered all these like really creative, weird freaks and they all just made art together. Yes. And I think that that's just really inspiring for people, including myself. Absolutely. Same. Like he inspired uh, and generations of people to go out and form the similar groups on their own and make art with their friends. And that's just beautiful. Definitely. Um, But the reason why I really wanted to talk about Desperate Living in particular is because it's my favorite John Waters film of all time. It's the one that I've seen the most. Um, I quote it the most. Mm -hmm. I laugh at it the most. So when I was in high school, I bought this VHS box set called the John Waters Archives. And I think it had like five or six of his films. And Desperate Living was the tape that I played the most. I returned to it over and over and over again. I mean, at the time, you know, in the 90s when I got the box set, you know, when I was just discovering John Waters, um, you know, Hairspray had already come out and, you know, mm-hmm. he he was sort of already super duper famous after that movie. But when I went back and I saw the earlier stuff, it just like Desperate Living was truly kind of the most punk rock thing I'd ever seen up yeah. until that point. And for many reasons. And even after seeing it dozens of times, it's still completely insane <laughs> in the best ways possible. I just still packs a punch. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I'm one of those lamos that um, came to John Waters in the 90s or late 80s um, through like Cry Baby and Hairspray. Yeah. But then went back and watched, you know, more of his movies as I got as I could find them. Yeah, I think most of most people our age are that way um, because, you know, this movie and, you know, belongs to this trilogy that he called the trash trilogy, which includes Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and these these were movies that came out in the 70s. So we would have either not been born or extremely young when these movies too came out. young for even a John Waters movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think people of our generation, certainly like Gen Xers would have known him from his late eighties movies probably. And, um, you know, by that time, like I said, he'd already made a lot of his films and, you know, he had already been making movies for major studios. So, uh, we kind of knew him as more kind of of a, like a commercial director that was just super quirky. But then, yeah, you go back and you watch something like Pink Flamingos and Desperate Living and you're like, fuck. I mean, this is like underground fucked up shit. And I loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the crazy thing to me about Desperate Living, though, was that like even within the John Waters universe, it feels like it's kind of one of his forgotten films and i'm really not sure why that is i mean i think part of me thinks that it's because it's one of his only earlier career films that doesn't have divine in it right and so you know maybe that is a big reason why people seem to have not really brought it back because a few years ago john waters was sort of like refetted or something by these like respectable sort of art house institutions like yeah. um 
female trouble and multiple maniacs got restored and they were brought to theaters again and had these like beautiful criterion collection blu-ray releases and i mean i was don't get me wrong i was happy to see those movies in like these very pristine conditions because i gotta be honest with you when i first saw multiple maniacs i saw it on like a eighth generation dub vhs tape from like the dude that owned blast off video and little five points so i i was like oh my god it's like a 4k restoration of multiple multiple maniacs this is fucking insane but yeah i just so i wondered why though desperate living hadn't been a part of that because it's definitely available like it's available from new line because I'll tell you, I know this because I attempted to program it for TCM earlier this year. And honestly, it would have played if my coworkers hadn't have pulled me aside and said, this is legit too crazy for TCM, even at four o'clock in the morning. Like, they were like, you know, like you had an intervention about desperate living. <laughs> like honestly, like we were gonna do a slumber ground episode about it. Like we were like ready to go, and then like Toya and Ben and Matthew were like, "I gotta be honest, I don't know if we're gonna be able to get away with this." And I was like, "You know what? You're <laughs> probably right about that." Even at four o'clock in the morning, it's like it was too crazy for four a.m. That's because you are the John Waters of TCM. <laughs> though is i think that also to that point though this movie is gross i mean it is truly (laughs) gross like it is filthy it's about people living in a criminal shanty town that is made of actual trash so it's like yes it's a it's a gross film on top of that right um because obviously i have seen a lot of john waters movies and i've pretty much studied them my entire life and i even i'm like okay like this might be by the numbers his grossest film i mean they're all all of them are packed like wall to wall with insane shit so i'm not actually sure but i don't know by the numbers it might be i think it takes the game there there are scenes in other films that are wild and could take the crown for wild scenes but the entire movie is gross yes and 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 it's so funny that it's that way because this is essentially a fairy tale. The movie is a fairy tale. Explain. <laughs> All right. Here's my one sentence synopsis of Desperate Living. A rich suburban housewife and her maid accidentally kill her husband and are exiled to Mortville, a criminal colony ruled by the evil Queen Carlotta and her sadist henchmen. Okay. Congrats. It's wonderful. Thank you very much, because there was so much going on in this movie that that feels like an understatement. Like the one sentence synopsis truly skims the surface of what Desperate Living is about. So this film is about a woman named Peggy Gravel, who was played by the legendary Mink Stoll of the Dreamlanders. She's a housewife in suburban Baltimore. She's been in and out of the hospital for having nervous breakdowns. She's convinced Everyone is trying to kill her, including her own children and her own husband. Okay. (laughs) And don't get me wrong. Her husband is a feckin' mushy-faced creep himself who is also racist. (laughs) Okay, so he's no prize. But, like, Peggy is truly on one. Okay? Like, the paranoia is strong with this woman. (laughs) 
the first there are very there are many memorable lines in this film but the first 15 minutes of this movie got some of the most quotable weirdest funniest lines i've ever heard an actor say I mean, I would say them all right now, but I would be that person that's just annoying and quoting a movie all the time. And who wants that? Right. So her husband is trying to medicate her at some point. Again, we're like 15 minutes in the movie of this like epic shit that she's saying. Um, And of course, Peggy flips out, calls in her psychiatric nurse named Griselda, who is played by Jean Hill. Another legend. More about her in just a second. But essentially, they kill him. I guess it's on accident, even though <laughs> nobody's really too sad that he's gone. Let's just say that. Yeah. Um. But they accidentally kill him. And at that point, they are officially on the run. They're officially sisters in crime, as Griselda calls them. They run out of that house and leave those children so fast. <laughs> Because, yeah, he's dead, but she has two kids in that house. (laughs) She's gone. Bye. They are still playing doctor somewhere. They're they're Who knows what happens to the gravel children? Let's just say that. But to me, this movie is all about Griselda, who is played by Jean Hill. Yes. Okay. She was a dreamlander. She was in several of John Waters movies. If anybody has seen Polyester, she's the woman in the choir robe who bites the tire of a car and pops it with her own mouth. Like seriously epic. And she has the, some of the best lines in this movie bar none. I just, I love her so much. So Peggy and Griselda are now on the run. They get pulled over by this psychotic police officer who assaults them in a very disturbing way. Very. (laughs) Also involving underwear, ladies underwear. There's a lot of crossover with our films unintentionally. (laughs) Unintentional crossovers always. And the cops basically like, I just heard about you guys on the radio. You guys are wanted for murder. The only shot you have is to go to Mortville. And they're like, what is Mortville? And he's like, it's just down the road. It's, you know, that's where you're going to end up. So they show up to Mortville and Mortville is a dump, like literally a dump. It's essentially a colony filled with people who have committed crimes. The whole place looks like the houses were made of like two by four and paper mache. They're just like very, (laughs) they're like paper thin walls. Everybody is wearing like clothing that they found on the street like they're they're eating rats for breakfast nobody has money or happiness and they just get brutalized all day by the police who are the henchmen of queen carlotta yes so their 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 life is hell as is the theme for this week okay so they show up to one of the houses and it it has a vacancy sign the door is answered by Mole McHenry, who is played by Susan Lowe. So Mole in this film, I believe in this film, would be described as a butch lesbian. Okay. Yeah. Maybe in a modern context would be a trans man Mm -hmm. with some possible gender dysphoria issues. Yeah. You know? Well, there's there's a line in the film where um, she says, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. And I think that's a fair assessment. Okay. 
So Mole's girlfriend is the beautiful Muffy St. Jacques, the most beautiful woman in Mortville, as she's called. <laughs> and she is played by Liz Renee, who is an absolute legendary woman. Just go look up her books, look her up. She was like a burlesque dancer. She was a gangster mall at one point. Like she has lived an incredible life and wrote the best names for books ever. <laughs> one of the one of the books that I own by her is called My First One Thousand Men. <laughs> <laughs> Just such an incredible person. She was, I guess, supposed to be kind of like a um she kind of has this Mamie Van Doren vibe to her a little yeah. bit. Um, but in this movie, she is unbelievable. Her and Mole are my other favorite characters in in the movie they just have the best lines ever and they do these flashback sequences of how they both ended up in mortville and they are so incredible mole was essentially a wrestler who killed her (laughs) opponent in the ring and the name of her opponent was big jimmy dong the human blockhead that's who she killed in the ring (laughs) and Muffy is in Mortville because it's revealed that she murdered her babysitter by drowning her in a bowl of dog food after her and her husband came home and realized that the babysitter had a party at their house and put her baby in a refrigerator. P.S. They actually had a baby in a refrigerator and... And there's Liz Renee opens the refrigerator door. The actress Liz Renee opens the refrigerator door and this baby comes falling out. <laughs> like oh God, the 70s, the 70s people. <laughs> who is doing that? You know, like who is doing that for us, for our entertainment? I say <laughs> nobody but John Waters. So. Peggy and Griselda move into Mole and Muffy's guest house and they soon become lovers and they quickly get sent to the castle of the evil Queen Carlotta, like I said, played by Edith Massey. She is a fascist dictator and we know this because she has paintings of famous dictators like Hitler (laughs) in her castle and she runs Mordville and she basically makes these residents live in filth she starves them she makes them do humiliating things for rich tourists who come and take pictures of them Mm -hmm. and she orders her goons around all day who are like these kind of like these tom of finland guys yeah and they carry her around on a fucking throne and perform sexual acts for her and edith massey is so great in this movie. It's like when we talked about misery a few episodes ago and we Mm -hmm. thought, wouldn't it be fun to be Kathy Bates playing that character? That's kind of how I feel about Queen Carlotta. Like I wish I could have been Edith Massey playing that character because the character is so ridiculous. Um, She eats like marshmallows all day and it's just crazy. Um, But she has a daughter named Princess Cuckoo, who is played by Mary Vivian Pierce. And Cuckoo hates her mom because she won't let her date this garbage man who works (laughs) at the nudist colony nearby. Okay, but essentially Mole and Muffy 
gather together the other lesbians in Mortville and they start planning to kind of overthrow Carlotta because they've had enough. Okay. And at some point, Mole wins the lottery. There's <laughs> a lot tucked in. I'm just trying to be as concise as possible. But, but I don't think it's possible. <laughs> I don't think it's possible either. Um, but Griselda and Peggy have paid Mole for room and board with like a lottery ticket. As it turns out, Mole and Muffy win the lottery. So at that point, I guess Mole and Muffy and the other crew in Mortfield decide we've had enough of this bitch. We got to get rid of her. Okay. Griselda at one point is killed after a house collapses on her. And after that happens, Peggy essentially becomes a servant to Queen Carlotta because, you know, Peggy, she comes from this rich suburban place and she has all these airs about her. And now that Griselda's dead, she kind of figures, okay, well, let me go in there and kiss a little ass and be the queen's servant. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is around the same time that Queen Carlotta decides that she wants to inject all of the residents of Mortville with rabies, <laughs> which is like totally outrageous. It just sounds like a fever dream. <laughs> it truly is. But OK, I know we say we don't like to give away the ending of movies, but I just have to in this case. I feel like this movie is old enough. I feel like it's ridiculous enough. Go for it. If you don't want to know the ending to Desperate Living. I say, like, skip 10 seconds right about now, okay? But at the end of this movie, Mole and Muffy and their friends storm the Queen's castle with Cuckoo. They kill Peggy. They eventually kill Queen Carlotta, effectively liberating the town, and then they feed the residents with the barbecued corpse of Queen Carlotta. <laughs> their former dictator. It's so much. It's so much. It takes... <laughs> Now, I never thought I would live to see the day that I would try to attempt to explain a John Waters movie to people on a podcast. So this is all very new to me. And I hope that I did it justice in some way. But the point of this is is to say that the whole movie is sort of like, well, it's obviously a satire, but it's but it's so the scope of it is so outrageous and huge that you're just sort of like in awe the entire time. I guess that's kind of the best way to put it. Yeah. But somehow somebody in the most recent year, I would say probably in the past year or two wrote a review of desperate living in the New York times, which basically compared <laughs> queen Carlotta and Peggy to Trump and Mike Pence, which I think is hilarious. Okay. Now, oh, shit. I actually think that's probably why I thought this movie would be a good pick for our theme this week. That is an incredible connection. <laughs> because it it's so funny that this movie has some kind of lasting power that actually has a lot of parallels to like current political events. <laughs> like who would have ever thought, right? And well, I mean, it's like that double-sided thing of like, A, who would have ever thought that John Waters would make the most outrageous fucked up movie of all time and it somehow is paralleled with a current thing that's happening in the world. But also that our lives became dystopian yeah. <laughs> enough to where it mirrored a John Waters movie, right? It's just, yeah. So, so we are in hell, the theme like this movie fits in because of John Waters' prophetic vision. <laughs> His very strangely prophetic <laughs> wisdom. 
I could have never imagined that in a million years. So I'm to me, this movie is, first of all, I do think it's worthy of a restoration and a whole mm-hmm. reexamining it just as much as all the other films. Like I know we said, it's the, the grossest one and uh, there's just so much going on with it at all times that it's kind of like a lot to take in. However, it totally deserves it because it's like, I watched it. I think it's on Amazon and I watched it. And I, and it, I was like sitting here going, Oh, like somebody could easily do the, the work on this. And maybe, maybe somebody is, and I don't know it, but I was like, imagine if this movie was in 4k, like it would blow people's minds. Um, but I think it's actually, it does deserve to be put back out in the world in a really great condition because it's so relevant. So people who have the power to do these types of things, please do that for me make a Blu-ray of it, bring it out to a movie theater so I can see it. All of the nooks and crannies. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I will go see it with you. Yes. I will cringe with you. I will puke with you. (laughs) It will be fantastic. I'm glad you picked this for, I didn't even realize you were going to make that connection to modern times, but I'm really glad you picked this film because I think that, you know, again, John Waters has, has impacted so many of our lives and, and this film in particular is just, it needs to be seen by people who are interested in the John Waters oeuvre. Yeah, I actually think I read somewhere, I think it might have been in the same New York Times article, which basically he was like, like somebody brought that up to him that basically like, isn't it weird that this movie you made in 1977 is like basically the Trump administration? And he was like, (laughs) yeah, but it's not funny. (laughs) It's not funny that that happened. So, and I have to agree. (laughs) Like, it's funny when it's a fake fairy tale. But, you know, kind of different when it's in real life sometimes. But um, it was it was a joy to watch it again. I hadn't seen it in a while. Like it had been a few years. Yeah. Um, and I I'm still imagining what would have happened if we played it on TCM. Not to say that it would <laughs> never happen. I mean, who knows? Who knows? What if it's the last movie you ever program? <laughs> Maybe that is it. And then you just retire. <laughs> I'm going to leave instructions in my will. <laughs> Play Desperate Living at 8 p.m. <laughs> the day that I die. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, our theme. I swear our themes, they make me laugh because obviously we're sort of in a space where we're just like thinking of funny things that would make each other laugh. But this one was really, really fun to think about because it was broad. Like some weeks it's very specific, but this one was like kind of like talk about hell. And that was our interpretation of it. So that's fun. It was great. It was great fun. Even talking about little children, (laughs) which is who just maybe watch that. Maybe watch that one in the morning. Like, you don't want to go to bed on the back of little children. <laughs> Both these films disturbing in their own lovely ways. Um, well, what are the movies for next week? Ooh, yeah. You're going to have to guess the theme, but the movies for next week are The Opposite of Sex from 1998 and Splendor from 1999. Oh, my goodness, people. Oh, woo. That's a doozy. Um. Very excited for that. But if you would like to, we we would love it. In fact, if you emailed us, if you just have thoughts, if you want to talk about 
dystopian future films or if you want to just give us stories of times that you had affairs with guys from the pool email us at where i saw what you did pot at gmail.com actually don't don't tell us about your affair because then what if it's a crime you you keep that to yourself i don't want to be implicated in any way <laughs> yeah we don't want to be subpoenaed for any shit so don't tell us about your affair actually but you can also find us on our social media accounts at I saw pod on Instagram and Twitter. And you can comment all you want there about your pool affairs. <laughs> yeah. In public. Um, we also have merch. Cold weather merch, people. It's getting a bit nippy outside. Um, it's at the uh, Exactly Right shop at exactlyrightmedia.com. And if you want even more from us, we have so many bonus episodes available only at Stitcher Premium. You can use the promo code SAW for a free month, but that's where we read most of your emails. So if you want to hear us respond to something you've sent, that's the place to do it. Yes. And I just have to say the last one we did cracked me up. It was so fun to do. And we, I just love doing it. It was so funny. Yeah. So fun. I love those episodes. They're really loose and free and fun. I mean, this these are loose and free and fun also. <laughs> Those, for some reason, I feel like they just make me laugh because your stories are wild. So they just make me laugh so hard. Yeah, we tend to read like long ones, too, because we just have the time. So, you know, a lot of people get like really into the like craft of writing the email, which we love. So please join us over there. But um, yeah, as always, it was fun. It is not a hell to do this podcast with you, Danielle. Oh, I'm only in hell when carrot pukes techno song techno song oh my god i'll never forget that Susie and the techno song when she said that i lost my mind but no this is the opposite of hell this is my favorite night of the week oh me too and on that note thanks everybody for joining us we love you talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgareth, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at isawpod. Email us at isawwhatyoudidpod at gmail. And please don't forget to listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 